We're continuing to look at Revelation and chapter 7. If you turn to Revelation chapter 7, found on page 1238 in the Pew Bible. This is God's word, reading from verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Messiah, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where do they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before, before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, let's uh, turn together to Revelation chapter 7. Realize that actually as this morning, I, I forgot to announce that we will be starting membership classes at some stage. 
uh, probably about the 23rd of February, Sunday mornings before uh, the morning service, around half past 10 or so. So uh, do bear that in mind. If you're not a member, you'd like to find out what being a member would involve, uh, then have a word with me, but, but certainly uh, 23rd of uh, February is when we're aiming to start that. Revelation chapter 7, at our Wednesday night fellowship groups, we have been going through that little series, uh, Six Steps to Loving Your Church. Now, we've only done one step, so if you're sitting here tonight and you don't love your church all that much, don't worry, you've got five more steps to go, and by uh, the end of, of six steps, you'll just think the church is fantastic. And we really ought to think the church is fantastic, because if we don't love the church, then we don't understand what it is we are part of. The church is precious to God. The, the Bible speaks about the church in the most amazing ways. We are called things like the body of Christ. We are, are referred to as the bride of Christ. God has made Christ head over all things for the church, the Bible tells us. In other words, the church is right at the very center of God's plans and purposes and his gaze. And we've got to admit, I think, that when we think of the church, these sorts of, of lofty images and ideas are, are often not the first things that come into our minds. Well, tonight, I, I hope that we will be a little bit more encouraged as we think about the church. We, we will get a, a, a sense, perhaps, just a little more of what a marvelous work God is doing in gathering His church. This passage in Isaiah 7, or in, in Revelation 7, is just a fantastic passage. We've often read it, used it as a call to worship in one way or another, this idea of the church gathered around the throne and praising God. And uh, we're going to say a few simple things about it tonight. But first of all, let's just remind ourselves what, what we're doing in this part of Revelation, what we've sort of seen here. This is, is the last part of one of the scenes of John's vision. John's vision has a number of sort of repeating and recurring uh, scenes and themes. And we have said that we're understanding the book of Revelation to talk to us about what is happening between the time that Jesus left the earth at the ascension and the time that he will come again at the second coming. So we're really seeing that the book of Revelation deals with what the Bible calls the last days. We're in the last days since the time that Jesus has left and the time that he will return again. And we see that this is a vision, this section uh, particularly is a vision uh, from 4 to 7, chapter 4 to chapter 7, where uh, we see through John's eyes the, the things that are happening in the heavenly realms. God is on the throne. We see some of the things that are happening on the earth. The, the earth is in conflict and turmoil. There are wars. There is famine. Uh, it, it's it's a, a picture of difficulty and destruction, but a, a limited difficulty and destruction because uh, God is in charge. And in the midst of all of this, God is building his church. He is having his good news of Jesus go out to the four corners of the earth. And men and women and boys and girls respond to that message. They trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They become his children, his church. But the church suffers and triumphs at the same time because it is kept by God. 
And in this part of, of John's vision, a number of seals are opened. These are seals that have been sealing up the, the scroll of God, the, which we understand to be God's plans and purposes for the world. Jesus is the one, that the lion and the lamb, who can open the seals. And each seal then brings an accompanying aspect of this vision. And in chapter 7, there's a sort of a, a lull in the opening of the seals. It's between chapter, uh, the seal of uh, number 6, which is opened in chapter 6, verse 12, and then the uh, seventh seal, which is opened at the beginning of chapter 8, introduces then a section that's full of seven trumpets. As chapter 6, verse 12 indicates uh, the coming of the Lord. It's the last day. Those who have opposed Him on the earth will shrink from Him, seek to hide from His judgments. And, and, and then we get this little clip, as it were, a film clip almost, uh, in chapter 7, an interlude between the opening of these two seals. And, and it's, it's not really chronological. The vision seems to flip back to an earlier time. A lot of flipping back and forward happens in Revelation. And the vision flips back to an earlier time, a time before the turmoil on the earth, at least conceptually, a time before the earth is harmed by the four winds or, or the four horsemen. I think they refer to the same thing. So, so that's really what's what's been going on here in these chapters. So chapter 7, first point in chapter 7, we see that the church, which is incredibly precious to God, the church is protected. The church is protected. Now, we, we touched on this very briefly last week or last time, but we want to say a little bit more about it. Uh, the picture of the four horsemen or the four winds uh, are there, and they're going to harm the earth. You see that at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So these uh, four winds are being held back by the four angels, and the point is being made here as elsewhere, right through Revelation, that God is in charge. He is governing all things, all things that take place, even the, the turmoil of this world. And before He allows this turmoil to visit and reign upon the earth, he gives this command in verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a, a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, we, we shouldn't think, uh, so, so what date did this happen? That, that, that's not the point of, of revelation. It's, it's to understand that, that, as it were, something happens in the plans and purposes of God before these things happen on the earth. It's not so much a calendar as a way of, of approaching uh, what's going on on the earth. Now, the servants of God here are, are simply the way that the, the church is described, the Christians are described. They are not special Christians or Christians from a particular time or a particular circumstance. They seem to be all Christians because all Christians are sealed. What's a seal? Well, a seal, we've said, is a mark of ownership. And, and therefore, if we are sealed, we cannot be lost. This is a very almost irrelevant story, but, but uh, when I was about 10 years old, my father bought me a Swiss army knife. I'd never had a Swiss army knife before. And I was so, so proud of that Swiss army knife. And my father also had a little uh, high-speed drill, like a Dremel thing, that you could engrave with. And so I wrote my name on one of the blades of this Swiss army knife. 
And lo and behold, I lost the Swiss Army knife. Lost it for months and months. Really annoyed. And those were the days, let me tell you, boys and girls, those were the days that if you lost something, you didn't just go out and buy another one. Uh, you had to just put up and shut up, and that was what happened. And uh, it was nearly, nearly the Second World War, you know. Uh, <coughs> and, and, uh, and, and one day, one of our neighbors turned up at the door, and they said, is this yours? And there was my Swiss Army knife. It had been run over by a car, and it looked really sorry for itself. But I've still got it. My name was on it, and so it was never lost to me. Now, now it's a bad illustration in lots of ways, but, but God has a seal upon all of his children, and they will never be lost to him. Revelation draws on all sorts of biblical imagery. In Ezekiel chapter 9, the faithful believers in Israel are sealed before, in the vision, a man in linen kills all those who, who does not have the seal. So the seal marks those who belong to God. In Ephesians 1, if you want to, to turn that one up, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says this, you also, here's right into Christians, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You see, God seals those who are his. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. You notice here, it guarantees our inheritance. Now, in, in Revelation, the point of, of where all of this comes in Revelation is that God does this before turmoil is poured out upon the earth. The ultimate safety, therefore, of all his children is secured before the difficulties. He, he promises it. Very often, some of you will have had these discussions. Do you think a, a real Christian can lose their salvation? This says, no. Once you genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know there are all sorts of warnings about false professions and so on, but once you genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is what our church has always understood the Bible to teach. We're, we're working our way through the Westminster Confession on alternate Wednesday nights. One of the things that we will eventually get to is chapter 17, and, and this is what it says, beautifully put. They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, those who God has welcomed in his Son, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. The confession goes on to say that genuine believers can really struggle, go through really difficult times, but if they are believers, they will not be lost. Jesus said that. Jesus said in John's gospel, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never drive away, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, 
but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Maybe some of us struggle with this question. It's not unusual. We think, what will, what will happen to us in the future? Because we know what we are like. Some of us have a particular sensitivity to our own sin and our own frailty. We, we, we sing when we sing it here, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We, we sing that with a particular insight into our own hearts. And we, and we wonder, Lord, what will happen to me in the future? Because my hold on you seems so tenuous at times. Well, if you want to go with what Jesus has said, have you looked to the Son and believed in Him? Well, then, if you have, God's will is not thwarted, it cannot be, and His will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. The church has been sealed, you see, by God. That's something we actually see later on in the second picture of the church that we get in this chapter. We, we'll, we'll, we'll address that in a moment or two, but, but down in verse 14, you notice of verse 14 of chapter 7, John asks the elder, who, who are these robed believers? Um, <clears throat> And the elder says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, now this has been one of those places, as in many, many places in Revelation, where people have disagreed and over their understandings of what's being said here. But some people think that the tribulation is a particular time of persecution in history, maybe just before Christ's return. But, but with our understanding, and we'll see that in a moment or two, with our understanding, this great robed company that we're going to look at in a moment are those who've come through the tribulation. They all have. In other words, the tribulation seems to be a reference to the fact that the church grows and flourishes in the midst of difficulty. It always does. It's true for, for every believer at some level or another. For some, it, is, it feels so much more true than for others. Our brothers and sisters in North Africa, for example. But for all who follow Christ, there is trouble. Jesus said that too, didn't he? In this world, you will have trouble. So you see here the the church comes out of tribulation. This is that other vantage point from what Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But even in this troubled world, the church is protected and sealed. Indeed, it is those very trials that so often are used for its ultimate blessing. Listen to these words, marvelous words from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said this, it is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. 
Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. I'm going to read that again. It's impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. That is so far from the fluffy religion that passes for Christianity in our day. But it is much closer to the tone of Scripture in which the church is sealed and passes through tribulation to glory. The church is protected. And if you've looked to Jesus, you're protected too. Second thing, the church is extensive, extensive, multi, multi-variegated, or, or I don't know, extensive. That's the one I could spell. What, what we have in, in, in this chapter is, is two pictures of the church. In Revelation 7, 4 to 8, the church is represented by 144,000. And then in verse 9 following, by this great multitude that no one can count. Now, the 144,000 is obviously a symbolic number. Perhaps it's, it's um, 12 by 12 by 1,000. It's, it's uh, saying something about the vast fullness of God's people, the 12 standing for the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, so on. But, but you, you notice that, that it's a number that John hears in verse 4. So if you like, it is God's assessment of the church. And then the great multitude in um, verse 9 following is what he sees. So it's his viewpoint of the church. So it's God's assessment and John's viewpoint. Let's say a word about the 144,000. This is a, a list of the tribes of Israel. The church is the new Israel. We'll not take time to, to uh, unpack that just now, but if you're taking notes, write down Galatians 6 and 16. It shows us that we have stepped into that relationship that, that Israel had under the old covenant. But this list of of, of tribes is different from most other listings of the tribes. Judah comes first. Judah doesn't usually come first. Reuben comes first usually. Judah comes first. Why? Well, probably because he is the tribe from which Jesus emerges. He's the Lion of Judah, after all. Reuben, who normally comes first, he's pushed into second place. Why? Because perhaps of a particularly gruesome, immoral act in his particular history. And then Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Manasseh. So they're all sons of Jacob, but, but from his concubines. So this seems to be the way of saying and the outsiders are being brought in. The, the, the Gentiles are being brought in. Manasseh replaces Dan in the last because Dan is not listed here. Dan became notorious in Israel for the leading of the people into idolatry. And then the other tribes sort of follow in their roughly expected order. So, so, so what John hears here is an assessment of the people of God that, that, that points Something to put something like this. As God sees his people, he is saying, Jesus is central, holiness is prized, Gentiles are included. Now we have to work 
a bit harder to understand that perhaps, but, but John would have got it much more quickly than we would. The people that he was writing to would have got it much more quickly than we would. So that's the 144,000. What, what about the, the, what John sees, verse 9? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. So if the inclusion of the Gentiles is hinted, don't forget we're Gentiles, if the inclusion of the Gentiles is hinted at in the way the 144,000 is described, then it is made very clear in what John sees because every nation and tribe and people and language is there. And it's interesting how um, our, um, our, our subject areas that we've been looking at this morning and this evening have sort of come together providentially, isn't it? This morning, we see Jesus commissioning his church, go and make disciples of all nations. And now tonight, we get a little a picture of how it all wraps up. And what do we find? We find that there are disciples from every nation in heaven. And the numbers are vast. They're beyond human numbering, though, of course, God knows who are his. You see, in our experience, Christians are in the minority, even here in, in, in Bible Belt, Northern Ireland. But we're likely to feel that even more in the coming days. But we ought not to feel that just because we are in the minority and perhaps pushed to the margins a little bit, that there'll only be a handful of people redeemed. There will be a vast number. And you see, this mission that, that, that God has, has given his church that we're involved in today is successful. No question about it. Marvelously successful, or at least it will be. God has promised. John has already seen, seen you, if you're a Christian here today. John's already seen you. Isn't that great? You've been seen in heaven, spotted. But he's seen people from, from every tribe and nation in glory. And that ought to give us confidence in the task. Yemenis, he spotted Yemenis. God has shown this to give us confidence in our mission. You remember whenever Paul is in Corinth in Acts chapter 19, he had a hard time. Jews particularly opposed him there and, and he begins to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to the Gentiles and some of the Gentiles believe at that point. And then God speaks to him in a vision. Acts chapter 19, verse nine. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in the vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, when did that come? That, that came at a time when there were not many believers in the city, just a handful. I think that, that, that God was saying, I have many people in this city who have not yet believed, but they will. And that was given to encourage Paul in his work. And here we see people from every nation in heaven. Shouldn't that encourage us? God has many people they are from all peoples and tribes and languages and nations. And as we give ourselves to this work of discipling the nations, it's, it's not a work that's in vain. The church is extensive, international, multi-ethnic, every tribe. The church is redeemed, briefly. We're going to 
speed up here very quickly. Uh, one of our great temptations as believers is to think that in some way we've contributed to our salvation. Isn't that right? We, the Bible says to us again and again, just to tell us, you, you've got to think this way, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah says that. Or Ephesians, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. Why does the Bible have to say that to us? Because we so easily disbelieve that. Well, it's underlined here again, isn't it? This picture of heaven. Those, these are they who have come out from the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, here's the church perfect. Holy, wearing white robes that are fitting for heaven. Why? Because they have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. That's a, a, a strange image, but, but that's what it is. So Jesus gives the church its standing by his death. His death earns the church the right to stand before the throne and praise God. No one says in heaven, I did this, I got here by myself. See, it's the same picture as you get with the 144,000. Jesus is central, holiness is prized, Gentiles are included. Last thing, just in a moment. The, the church is precious because we see this, this church praising God around the throne, palm branches, that ancient prop and praise that was used to worship Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. But even here, whenever we, we see the church praising God in heaven, it, it's not that God's not doing anything. Clearly, God is blessing the church. There's an ongoing outpouring from God to the church. The church is precious to God. Precious because his, the blood of his son, the blood of the, the lamb has, has given them the standing to be there, of course. But then also, he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them, verse 15. It's, it's perhaps a, a picture of the tabernacle, a, a, to, to be in the presence of the Lord. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. What happens is that there's nothing negative there. Hunger goes, thirst goes, the scorching sun goes. These are not so much realities for people in our part of the world today where we're worried about hunger and thirst and the scorching sun. Certainly not worried about the scorching sun. But they were real challenges for the people that John was writing to, weren't they? Where's my next meal going to come from? Am I going to get enough fresh water? How can I get into the shade? And you see, Revelation says, all, all your basic needs are going to be met. All your needs are going to be met. Nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. How much time do you spend worrying and fearful? Think of all the time that this is going to free up for you. And why? because there is one who tends to his people. The lamb who is the shepherd. Revelation loves to mix its metaphors. So the lion becomes the lamb, and then the lamb becomes the shepherd. And this shepherd beautifully cares for his sheep. He brings them to springs of living water. We find later on that it's a river of living water. There's no lack of provision. And if that's not enough, God himself wipes away every tear. You see, we sort of think that heaven will be about us doing things for God. Well, it does appear that there's going to be work in heaven and things to do, but the, but the direction here 
is God doing things for us? As if to say, though I do not need you, I want you and I delight in you. There is a delight here, isn't there? Can we say almost reverently, can we say an eagerness on the part of God to bless and on the part of Christ to provide? Listen to Matthew Henry. They have formerly had their sorrows and shed many tears, both upon the account of sin and affliction, but God himself, with his own gentle and gracious hand, will wipe those tears away, and they shall return no more forever. And they would not have been without those tears when God comes to wipe them away. Have you been crying? One day you'll cry no more because the church is precious. So, Christian friend, if this is the church, bless it by your presence. Throw yourself into it. Bless it with your prayers. Make it the center of your longings, the heart of your efforts, because it is protected and extensive and redeemed and precious. And that means that we are protected, redeemed, and precious. Let's pray.